This is a Whole Observatory podcast. Welcome to another episode of Star Stuff. This is Cody Half Moon, and joining me today is Lowell researcher Gerard Van Bell. Hi, Gerard. Hello. And Gerard focuses in stellar astronomy and instrumentation. We also have Star Stuff co-host Wesley Sonomica. Hello. And uh, today we're going to talk about the life of stars. Last week we went over the stories of the stars, but today we want to go into their cute little life cycles and get into the hard science. So to start off, Gerard, what do you do? I didn't do it justice there. That is always one of the hard questions I get is, what do you do every day? What do you do, Gerard? <laughs> what do you even do? Usually, usually asked by my wife. But, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> but the, the thing that I do is uh, I, I'm an astronomer at Lowell that studies the fundamental properties of stars. So how big are they? How hot are they? How old are they? And um, towards that end, I do get myself involved with building a lot of instrumentation that can be applied towards that question. And uh, that has led me into interesting paths and venues of learning how to do things that are wildly outside my actual educational experience, such as civil engineering and other kinds of engineering and so forth, to get these new telescopes built that are out on the cutting edge to give us the best and freshest and most uh, difficult to get data on these stars. I almost didn't recognize you because you usually have a shirt that talks about your interest in low mass stars. Yep. What is this one? Today. Let's make great parents. Nice. Yep. I like it. That's oh. good. <laughs> I don't get it. So it must be a really smart t-shirt. So, so for people who are um, listening only, uh, Gerard's shirt has uh, it's, it's like a, one of those pictures. It's like the office like sign that's got the people on it. It's like those it kind is, of people, yeah. but it's a parent like with a, a row of children on a swing it's, and it's New- like Newton's the, cradle. Yeah, it's set up like a Newton's cradle. Very hysterical, just for the people who are who are just listening. You have to you have to pretend that the children are are uh, frictionless spheres of radius one. Aren't they? And yeah, <laughs> that's how I treat my children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like frictionless spheres of radius one. Yeah, yep. of course, obviously, it would. Whenever I picture you, your permanent shirt in my head is the I want to talk. Was it I want to talk about? I'm thinking about low mass stars. I'm thinking I'm about thinking low mass about stars. Low. My favorite, um, but my favorite shirt of Gerard's has his, uh, it's the one that you made of the, um, we talked about this last time on the the, the Secret Forbidden uh, podcast episode. The Secret Forbidden um, podcast that didn't record. <laughs> yeah, with the, with, the, with the audio that fell in a dumpster. Um, <laughs> but the, the shirt that you have that you made out of the, that fabric version of your Pokemon papers that they give you. Yeah, so at uh, science conferences, when you present posters, nowadays there is uh, an option to print onto fabric. And so I've been collecting fabric from many conferences, and I sewed it into a Hawaiian shirt. And it's a, it's a pretty epic shirt, I have to say. And while we're on the topic, since we <laughs> do have the, the horrible secret episode that we might release at some point. Recorded underwater. Yes, recorded underwater. We'll have our <laughs> specialists look at it. We did talk about a Pokemon paper, and I just want to give it justice here for a second. It's yeah. Fast. So Pokemon is is the kind of tongue-in-cheek name of a study I've been running for a few years on the big telescope at Lowell, our 4.3-meter telescope. That means we have a, a mirror that's about 180 inches in diameter, so it's our big gun. And I've been looking at these 
stars that are near to the sun that um, are really small stars. The most of the stars that are nearby are very small. And so the study has been called Pokemon, which is the pervasive overview of companions of every M M class dwarf in our neighborhood. Yes. That's of course, right. Wesley not, would know. It's, it's the best. It's my favorite. They have little like they have little like Pokemon cards that they've made for the for the stars. They're like HR six one whatever. Yep. It's so good. It's the when best. we discover things, we can make Pokemon cards that you know we got to catch every one. Oh my god! And I want to know that this was a an actual research paper. This isn't some internal joke. This is actually <laughs> it the actually name of... is yes yes. The uh, grad student from NAU, who's soon to be a former grad student, uh, Catherine Clark, who's been working with me, um, just sent me a draft of uh, the first discovery paper uh, that we're going to be submitting to a journal. And it's the you know first results from the Pokemon survey. Sweet. That's amazing. We have to get you on the marketing team, Gerard. We, oh, man. We just, Astronomers are legendary at coming up with just really awful tortured acronyms. Yes. That's that's how one determines how, how good of an astronomer you are is how much you can torture an acronym. And, and by that metric, Gerard is one of the best. And you can tell that astronomy has just been around. It's one of those sciences that's just been around for ages and ages and ages. Because the naming conventions are so weird. Like, we're talking about the life of stars today. And I was the only one that had to do any prior research to this. But it's like the first life of a star is called a protostar. And then some of us are like, oh, this is like a super giant, man. It's like a red super giant. And this one's like a dwarf. And then this one's just like, oh, I don't. There was a really weird one. It's like spectrum sequence a main sequence star like mm-hmm. i don't know you can tell not one person named this yeah I'm not a big fan of hertzsprung russell diagrams there. and so, some of this language is archaic and even a bit sizes <laughs> and probably yes and, i thought the same thing i was like this is problematic yep, yep. it is actually and, and so <laughs> yeah. yeah astronomy is trying to move away from such things but we're also kind of a little you know it's like being mired in molasses sometimes like i feel like you know the the is it i whoever whoever was mad about pluto they need to be focusing on naming conventions of other things and maybe not pluto it's rough it's all rough iau yeah this is the iau the international astronomical union and they do a really good job of of defining things like like measurements you know how big is a astronomical unit how big is a foot or a meter um, but the problem is they wander into metaphysics sometimes away from physics and they start saying, well, rather than just saying how big is a mile, we're going to tell you what a ruler is. And mm-hmm. we all know that a ruler could be many different things. There, there are actually many different kinds of rulers out there in astronomy and in physics for measuring distances. And so it's like, be careful where you go because you're kind of, you know, stay within your lane. Yeah, <laughs> I picture them to like walk around their conference room in like big wizard robes and like, <laughs> I don't yes. know. they uh they annoy me but it's fine <laughs> i you if you're listening you still annoy me uh, yeah. <laughs> so let's let's just start off with the basics i already mentioned proto stars but i kind of want to talk just the very basics of what is star? Like, what is a star? What I know it's energy, but even like, what does that mean? Like, explain it like I'm five. So a star is a object in space that is shining because of nuclear fusion. That's it. 
So it's a bomb. Um, it's a big shiny ball. It it's it's a bomb in a certain sense as far as it's powered by nuclear fusion, but it's not a bomb in the sense of it doesn't go boom. It's a steady thing. Um, of course, some stars eventually go boom, but we'll get to that point. We'll later get on. to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, they seem to have various different paths. So, yeah. um, and so. One of the big advances over the last hundred years in stellar astrophysics and astrophysics in general has been the realization that there is uh, many ways to characterize a star. How big is it? How far away is it? How bright is it? What's its temperature? But there's one parameter in particular that really is prescriptive in saying, this is how this star is going to be born and live and die. Because stars have lives, kind of like people. And that one parameter is its mass. How much material does it have? And if it's something that's on the order of the size of the sun, you'll basically plot a path through its life that has a certain track. And if you have something that's lower in mass or higher in mass, you may get deviations from that. And the sun's a good example because the sun, in terms of its mass um, and the, the range of masses that are possible for a star, is kind of in the middle. And you'll find that there are stars that are up to about 100 times more massive than the sun, and you'll find that there are stars that are about 100 times less massive than the sun. And the sun's kind of average in the range of possibilities there. Um, it's a little lopsided in terms of the, the low-mass stars are actually much more populous uh, than the high-mass stars. As you go from the low-mass stars down to the high-mass stars, you get less and less and less stars. Um, this is one of the reasons why I'm doing this, this Pokemon survey that we talked about earlier, is that it concentrates in on the smallest stars, which um, don't actually turn up that much, say, in the stars you can go out inside and see with your own two eyes. There are very few of them because they're so small, they're very dim, but uh, they make up about 70% of the stars in our galaxy. Wow. And so, yeah, so the sun... Uh, there are less and less stars once you get to the mass of the sun, and then you go to 100 times the mass of the sun, and they're real oddballs. And I just want to say, like, the sun, the sun is so cool. Like, I never really thought about it. I I like sunny days. It, to me, it's like you've got the sun and the moon, and in graphics, they're the same size. I don't know, like, just growing up, you don't have a lot of context for how incredibly yeah. amazing it is that there is yeah. a star right there. Like, we have people come visit the observatory, and they're like, oh, we didn't get to see any stars. And it's like, dude, Come during the daytime and look through a filter. It's the coolest yeah, thing you've ever that's really seen. Awesome. I love that oh. solar telescope that we have. That's my favorite. I didn't. I didn't do it till last week. I was. I'm. It's it's, really I'm cool. still yeah. like like buzzing after seeing it. It's you can just insane. look through that thing and see big giant gouts of flame <laughs> that are bigger yes. than the entire Earth. Like just just look at it and see those. And our in our sun, which is kind of a middle aged star right now, it's a main sequence star. Perfectly so. average. Yes, it's, 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 in, it's in the middle of its life. It actually, uh, it goes through these known 11-year cycles of activity where it gets more or less, it's like it has storms on its surface, just like we have hurricanes and cyclones here on Earth. And it has an 11-year cycle to those things where it's been kind of quiet. It's coming out of that phase. And so now when you go and look through the solar telescope here at Lowell, you can start to look along the limb of the sun and you see gouts of flame and plasma that are spurting mm -hmm. off of the surface. Really cool. It's so neat. And it's amazing because when you look at it, so you can look at it through the, the solar telescope or they, they made a filter using the same lens or material where you can just hold it up and look at it. And you just see this like 
flaming ball in the middle of black inky space. And it's just, it's so incredible because you look at stars through telescopes and you learn stories about them and it's very fascinating, but to see one that close and then I just felt so dumb. I'm like, oh my God, this is, I see it every day. <laughs> They're big and terrifying and cool. It's the, yeah. I, I make jokes about this a lot. Uh, the sun is the closest thing we have to a, a, an eldritch deity. In our solar system. <laughs> yeah. It is, it is slowly uh, poisoning everyone. And also it's the only reason any of us are here. If we could hear it, it would be screaming. Um, <laughs> if you look like at in it, Rick and Morty. Blind. yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If there was a, if there was a, I, I don't remember what I was reading, but something about if there was a material between us and the sun that you could, that sound could travel through, it would be like the sound of 80 freight trains everywhere at once on the <laughs> Amazing. earth. Yeah. And so what are sunspots? I know I don't want to get too off topic, but I'm curious. No, please. There are regions on the surface of the sun where you get concentrations of magnetic field, uh, just like here on the earth, where if you have a compass, you can pull your compass out and points north. The The sun has a magnetic field as well. But since the, the sun is not a big rock like the earth, but it's, it's this this lump of screaming plasma. Uh, <laughs> Lumps of screaming. I think that's a, I think that's a good title name. Title of the episode. episode. Title of the episode. Lump of screaming plasma. The, uh, the magnetic field in this lump of screaming plasma can, can sometimes tie itself into knots. And, and that, uh, more or less is, is, is how you get these spots on the, on the surface of the sun. It's, essentially, it's a region where the, the, the naughty magnetic field is suppressing... Naughty, naughty. Very naughty, bad magnetic field. Naughty, naughty with, a, with, a K, with a K. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm thinking what a naughty mag- magnetic field is. Um, <laughs> Picture that for a second, <laughs> listeners. So this... <laughs> The magnetic field, when it's all bundled up, will will suppress the sun's ability to get energy out at that spot. And so that spot of the surface of the sun, it's still really bright. It's just that in relation to the areas around it, it's not as bright. And so it looks like a kind of a black eye on the sun. Awesome. So magnet something, something. That's right. Magnet something, something, precisely. Yeah. What's funny about that is astronomers famously hate magnetic fields, and we try to <laughs> sweep them under the rug. <laughs> Why? Because they're messy and hard to deal with and not as simple as... We don't want to do Maxwell's equations. No. Nah, so so we uh, astronomers oftentimes will just kind of wish them away when we're trying to come up with solutions for things. And and so, you know, a, a, a famous uh, uh, sort of thing to do is, you know, during a conference, if you give a presentation and you have Q&A afterwards and somebody will invariably, you know, raise their hand and say, have you thought about magnetic fields? And everybody's <laughs> like, shut up. No. <laughs> 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 it's and that is that why it has such a cute name like sunspot <laughs> I, I you know the the name came from antiquity so again astronomy right. is very a very old science if not the oldest science and um it it just came from the fact that you know as when they started to look at the sun with telescopes uh they started to find you know, oh there there's spots here so yeah, spot there sunspots and yeah. now we're starting to get telescopes such as the ones that i build that can actually see other stars as as balls like we can see the sun oh. so this has not actually been possible up until recently and we see spots in them so we call them star spots so star spots. yeah That's astronomers nice. can can be kind of clever and imaginative with acronyms but we also mm-hmm. could be famously unimaginative yeah thanks so. the acronyms are great the actual technical names are awful yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
So let's talk about protostars. Yes. And that sounds like a very scientific name, but proto is an ancient word, so I'm not sure where that comes from. But that just means the first step in its life cycle, right? That's right. So stars have a life, just like people almost, where they are born and then they have kind of the main phase of their life. And then they explode. Just like humans. Exactly like humans. Some of them explode, but most of them just kind of wither into the night like most humans. Gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) And so on the front end, where stars are born, in, in, in our galaxy, there are regions of gas and dust between the stars. And occasionally, some of these regions will get more dense and you, they will uh, get enough material that gravity will start to perk up and say, hello, we've got a party here. But and why? Um, there are just regions of overdensity in our galaxy. And the reason where they come from and why they come from is actually a subject of research. Um, it's oh. thought that you can actually have some of that being sculpted by other stars. You know, the stars shine and that light actually has a pressure to it, radiation pressure. And uh, that and, and other sorts of things from especially big stars can push on the spaces between the stars and cause these regions of overdensity to happen. But uh, yeah, if, if we just basically start with the, the lumps of gas and dust uh, that are just a bit more dense than, than elsewhere in the galaxy, they will collapse. They'll start to have gravity take over and start to pull stuff together. Mm. And the thing about that is uh, when you take a thing and it starts to compress the, the atoms in a big ball of gas and dust, and we're talking about a, 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 a lump that is 100,000 times bigger than our solar system, let's say. Um, oh, yes. real, real big. They form whole God. solar systems. These lumps of, of that's stuff. right. Yeah. Wait, is this is this what a nursery is? Yes, that's right. Yes, a star nursery. A st- stellar nursery. A stellar yes. nursery. Describes stellar nursery. Like, uh, yep. A much larger cloud that would form many of these protostar. That's right. Pockets. Yeah, and so these um, these these knots in the in the gas and dust will start to collapse down, and as they collapse down, they heat up. The, the atoms are starting to get pushed against each other and they bump into each other more and that causes the temperature to rise. Eventually, you get to a point where uh, it actually will start to shine and this is a protostar. And the interesting thing about that is with a star, at the core of the star, there's enough heat that nuclear fusion takes over, that, that the atoms are so compacted together that they actually start gluing to each other. You get hydrogen atoms that, that lump into each other and become helium atoms. Um, and, and that's what makes a star shine. But even before that, you get a sufficiently dense lump of gas and dust, and it'll shine, but it won't even have nuclear fusion going on because it's still in the process of collapsing down and the core is still rising in temperature. Uh, but that whole process actually still releases energy. It turns gravitational energy into radiation. And this protostar, this object that doesn't have fusion going on yet, will actually be bright. And so you can actually look at these things and try and measure their brightness and measure their mass and see what's going on there. And um, another uh, interesting little consequence that's actually pretty important here is if you take a big, big lump of gas and dust that's you know 100 times the size of our solar system and you start to collapse it down, if it starts off with just a little bit of spin, if it's rotating just a little bit, as it collapses down, it actually makes that spin go faster and faster. And 
that means that it's hard for all the material to get to the center of the collapsing object. So some of the material settles out into a disk around the protostar. And this is important because that disk itself gets little knots formed out of it. And that's where the planets come from. That's where... Oh. Very good for us. Yes. We love I those. Thought, okay, so two Big kind of, of follow-up questions on that. So the dust and everything that we that creates these nurseries, mm-hmm. that's star stuff that was from another star that died and yep. spat out stuff. And yep. then it's just like this cycle of kind of rebirth, I guess. Um, yes. And, okay. and what's really uh, a significant detail on that front is um, the, the earliest generation of stars, the, the first stars that were born in the baby universe. Pop uh, one? Yes, that's right. Um, when the, the, the universe was born, it was almost entirely uh, divided into hydrogen, about three-quarters hydrogen, and helium, about 25%, and nothing else. Um, there was a little bit of lithium, but that's kind of, we'll just set that aside. Even that's Ooh. getting crazy. Yeah, but that was it. There was, there was no iron, there was no carbon, there was no oxygen, um, things that are here in abundance here on Earth, let's say. And, and there was none of that. And what happens is when a star is born and lives and dies, um, especially the big, big stars, things that are, are, say, about 10 times more massive than our sun, when they die, they go out with a bang and they explode and they explode with such force that they can take things like hydrogen and helium and ram those atoms together to make much, much heavier elements, such as carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, uh, things heavier than iron, which is very important. And so that explodes out into the cosmos and pollutes these stellar nurseries for the next generation of stars. And so when the next generation of stars form, they actually do have the heavier elements present. And you can make things like rocky planets. Which takes a pop three star to make a planet. Uh, I always forget the exact notation here. I think pop two is the kind of the general population where we're at right now. Um, and our star is a pop or pop three? Uh, it's metal rich. <laughs> it, it starts turning into a mess. That like it's really easy to be like, yeah, we can figure out this is a first generation star for X, Y, and Z reasons, and then after yeah. that, it's a mess. It's a huge uh. mess. By the way, I used a little jargon there. The uh, astronomers, when they talk about metals, there are <laughs> metals. Wesley, Wesley knows where I'm going with this. There are there are three things. Yeah, there's like metal, yeah. and then. Um, there is hydrogen, there's helium, and then astronomers have metals. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Everything else, they just sweep under the rug and they say, that's a metal. And that's gotcha. not really, you know, in astronomy, that's a very specific but peculiar use of the word. Yeah, I remember the first time, I think it was Don who was talking about like iron. He was like, oh yeah, that piece of iron bar is from a star. And it was from a different star before that, and there is no other, literally no other way for it to exist. Yeah. Except for that it yeah. came from a star. You can't make this. Yeah. Only it a star killed, it killed a star at one point. Yeah. Most of the iron specifically is is stuff that forms inside those really, really massive stars that then it can't do anything with, and that's what makes it die. This is an interesting uh, element of the discussion that we'll get to when we talk about main sequence stars. But, and, and, oh. and so maybe we can, can transition to that, which is... Mm-hmm. You know, we have the nurseries, and they create the protostar, and as the protostar collapses down, you finally get to a point where it's small enough, but also hot enough and dense enough at the core 
that fusion turns on, that, that the, the, the gas at the center of the star is so much banging into each uh, itself, the, the, the individual atoms, that they start to fuse. And the important thing there is that now you don't just have gravitational potential energy that's, that's being released from this object. You now have um, thermonuclear energy that's being released. And that's why the main sequence part of a star, the, the, the main lifetime of a star, is uh, such a long period of time because you have all this hydrogen and helium at the core, and that actually can sustain it for a long time as the, the material of the star pulling in with its own gravity, the radiation from the thermonuclear energy is fighting against that. In the end, gravity always wins. But for a long time, the fusion energy can stab that off. Um, and that's what we call the main sequence phase of life. So for a star like the sun, its protostar phase is about 100 million years or so. Um, that initial well, phase. Nothing. Yeah, it's a teenager. That's a, that's a toddler. That's, yeah. Right until graduation. That's right. <laughs> and, then, um, and then once you got to the point where you turn on nuclear fusion, then you get about 10 billion years for the sun to shine. And that's called the main sequence phase of its life, where at the core, the atoms of hydrogen are being fused through the proton-proton chain uh, into helium. And, and so that's a very specific kind of fusion that's happening for stars about the mass of the sun and smaller. Even bigger stars, uh, things that are, say, twice the mass of the sun, up to 10 times the mass of the sun, they actually have enough heat and energy at the core that they actually do a different flavor of fusion called the CNO cycle. And, but the net result is the same. You, you are turning hydrogen into helium. Um, in that case, it's through, you know, the, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen are kind of an en a enzymatic sort of element of the relation. Of enzymatic. The, the, yeah. I like that word. It's the, there are little helper elements that are making the hydrogen go into the helium more efficiently. So this is like it's prime years. That's right. That's right. Okay. And yeah, this, this lasts about 10 billion years. And, and during that time, the, the, the brightness of the star is pretty constant. Um, in the case of the sun, it will get brighter and brighter towards the end of that phase by a little bit, you know, like a factor of one and a half. And it's important to note that, again, I, I, I said earlier in the podcast that the mass is very prescriptive in this regard. So if you take a star that is 10% the size of the sun, will fuse hydrogen to helium, but that phase of its life will actually not be 10 billion years, but it could be 100 billion years wow. or, or even a trillion years long because- Like it has a slower metabolism. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. We don't know exactly how long it is. Yeah. If we, the universe hasn't been around long enough yet. Just literally have not had enough time to see anything like that die yet. Yeah, so what's interesting about this uh, phase of life for stars that are just a bit more massive than our sun, they have gotten to the point where they've reached the end of that stage. But if you go roughly the mass of the sun or a little lower, the lifetime of the star is such that none of them have actually ended their main sequence phase yet. Yet They're actually still kind of in middle age, and you know, even over the entire lifetime of the universe, they have not gotten to the point of gotten to old age yet. So these, even the young stars, they're old. So the, the bigger stars get to be old and die. <laughs> and the, 
the lower mass stars will get to be old and die at some point too, but the, the, the smallest ones just haven't had enough time to get old. We have different names, and I'm not sure where these names fit into the life of the star. I'm assuming it's a main sequence star, but we've got red supergiants and red giants. What is the difference between those? They're both off of the main sequence, for one thing. Yeah, so, so when a star is in its middle age, when it's living on the main sequence, it is uh, actually called a dwarf star. And, 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 and where this phrase, the main sequence, comes from is if you make a plot of the brightness of a star, the luminosity of the star, versus its temperature. If you have the brightness along the vertical axis and temperature along the horizontal axis, you'll find a lot of stars are kind of right across the middle. But you find this, basically this swath from, you know, small, cool stars that are not very bright to big, hot stars that are very bright, but they all kind of follow a linear sequence. And, and that we call that the main sequence. That's where the main number of stars that we see in the sky fall. Um, but then, if you plot up this, this Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, you'll also see that, you know, despite the fact that you have this sequence of stars going from one corner to the other corner, you'll see that above the line, there's, there's families as well. And what these families are related to is, again, what's going on at the core of the star. Uh, and so the first clump that you see, kind of a, a body of stars that are uh, brighter but cooler, than the main sequence stars, uh, we call those giant stars because they actually physically are about a hundred times greater in radius than our sun. Uh, they actually are quite a bit larger physically. And the what's happened with these stars is that at their core, they have been doing this whole business of fusing hydrogen into helium. Uh, and with these stars, what happens is the helium ash builds up at the core, and it starts to get in the way. It starts to be the predominant uh, thing in the, in the core, and it starts to get harder and harder for these stars to fuse hydrogen into helium until finally you get to a problem point where it can't do it anymore. And gravity starts to take over again and making the star collapse down because now there's no radiation pressure that's pushing outwards. Um, and it makes the temperature at the core increase so much so that you can actually start fusing the helium into other stuff. And what, is, what do you mean? You can actually start to take the helium atoms, the, the ash from the earlier proton-proton chain that's turning hydrogen to helium. You can actually take that and lump it together into nitrogen and oxygen and carbon. And okay. that also releases a little bit of energy. And it actually does so at a bit more of a frenetic pace. It makes it... Uh, it, it actually starts to, to cough up a bit more energy than the previous more sedate cycle of taking hydrogen and turning it to helium. And that makes more energy come out and the star swells up in size. That's where you get the giant star phase from because the core is now starting to, to give off more energy in a desperate bid to, to hold off gravity, to, to stop gravity from making this whole thing collapse down. We're all just fighting yeah. gravity. We are. We are yes. all just fighting gravity. Yep, yep. And that's where you get a giant star from. And um, a super giant star is, is similar in that it's even bigger, but it has other things going on at the core of fusing even heavier elements into 
uh, increasingly heavy elements that make it swell up in size even more. And okay. so it the, is more of the same. It is more of the same. In fact, you get these shells of, you know, the the core is super hot and it's uh, say fusing helium into heavier things, and you make it a shell around the core. We actually still have the old style of uh, of helium of hydrogen being fused into helium. Um, and in the case of a red supergiant, it'll look like an onion, where you know, on the outermost shell, you'll have hydrogen going into helium, and then you have a layer with helium going into carbon, oxygen, and oxygen, and then a layer below that where you're, I think, manufacturing xenon and other things. And you're kind of marching up the periodic table, if you call it the periodic table from chemistry. But there's there's a problem, <laughs> and the problem is is that when you get to iron, when you have worked your way so far down the periodic table that you take iron and you're like. Let's just keep on playing this game. Let's lump iron together and make something heavier. But the problem is, is that that style of fusion does not release energy. That style of fusion actually absorbs energy at that point because of how nuclear physics works out. And at that point, you're in for a big problem with the biggest stars that can do that, that can attempt that kind of fusion, which is you actually don't... uh, produce energy anymore you are absorbing it and suddenly the the uh, foundation that's holding up the rest of the building collapses and that's too close to the sun (laughs) that's right and so the core of the star collapses and the rest of the star above the core you know takes a look down and be like hey where our floor go and comes comes crashing in on top of it this is where you get uh uh, one style of supernova from where the rest of the star comes crashing down and hits the bottom and explodes. So that is where we've gone from the main sequence into the giant and supergiant phase. And that's where you get star death, where for the heaviest stars, you have this explosion. Now, that doesn't happen for all stars. For, for some stars, there is uh, a more sedate death, like for our sun. It's still like explosion adjacent, but it's not nearly as as uh, terrifying or big or loud or bright. Yeah. So with our sun, what you get is the um, the hydrogen going into helium stops, and then helium tries to go into heavier elements, and then that's pretty much it. There, it it it, it doesn't actually have enough gravitational energy of the top of the star pushing on the bottom of the star to go to these other kinds of fusion where you're trying to fuse really heavy stuff into even heavier stuff. And so the star just kind of gives up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're left over with a lump of ash called a white dwarf. And this is a thing that's about the size of the earth of super dense leftover material. And the outer parts of the star kind of get sloughed off into interstellar space. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make more stars. To make more stars. Beautiful. I think you get a lot Beautiful of. Too. Don't they make a lot of uh, oxygen when they turn into planetary nebulas like that? I think that's Earth? right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So that's also a very, very horribly named thing in astronomy: planetary nebulas. Oh, the, the the stuff that yeah. they expel when they leave behind the white dwarfs, um, like the Ring Nebula or the, the Dumbbell Nebula or stuff like that. Um, are these really, really pretty big clouds of gas. That are very unhelpfully called planetary nebulas because they have nothing to do with planets. Yes, right. and I remember that was from ancient times as well, where they're like, "Oh, 
like a planet. It looks right? like it, but it's not moving like planet on the sky. What's what's up with yeah. that? And then some of them become black holes. When the the very biggest stars die, it's thought that um, you you have this massive event where the core collapses, and potentially the core can collapse so fast that there's nothing to stop it, and the the gravity basically consumes the core and winks it out into a, a black hole. And there's one in the middle of our galaxy. And my conspiracy theory is that they make galaxies. It's true. There, there's a big one at the core of our galaxy, but uh, that one is actually so big, it's not a stellar black hole. It's a, it's a galactic black hole. And it's unclear on exactly where did those come from. Uh, you know, how did, how did that form? Um, it's probably related to uh, processes all the way back in the Big Bang, where um, you get black holes forming from instabilities of, of the original primordial big- soup. Yes, and and that collected galaxies around them. But uh, yeah, the uh, the the stellar black holes are on, only you know ten times the mass of the only. sun, yeah. rather than a million times the mass of our sun. And I'm going to stop asking questions at this point because <laughs> uh, uh, there are so many. We have an entire episode of black holes, and all that did was make me have yep. more questions. So <laughs> yeah. I don't want to go down that goes. road. Yeah. yeah. So um, let's so let's recap. Let's recap. Yes, at the, recap, please. At the the end of the main sequence life, the the star runs out of of being able to do normal fusion at the core, and so the core will try to collapse, and that causes other kind of fusion that ultimately makes the star die in uh, in sometimes explosive ways or sometimes in more sedate ways. I have a few follow-up questions yep. before we run out of time. Does you so you mentioned that the star will sometimes like spin and then that will create planets. Is our sun spinning? It is. And our our star, our, our sun, it rotates about once every 30 days. I and have no idea. Okay. It does. Yeah. And so what's interesting about that is uh the the sunspots that we can see, right. you can actually look at them. And then if you come back the next day, if you go up to the Godo here at Lowell Observatory and you look at the sun through our solar telescope, you do that on a daily basis because you're here up on Mars Hill a lot. Um, And you're a member. Yes, that's right. (laughs) You can actually see the spots move if there are appreciable spots. And uh, And I thought they were just moving. No, they're, they're actually moving because of the rotation of the sun. It also makes black holes rotate because, you know, if you've ever seen a figure skater pull their arms in when all of that. Rotating oh, yeah. mass collapses faster. So those are spinning too. Oh yeah, really? Everything's spinning. It's just sort of a safe bet that everything's spinning. <laughs> That's right. Everything's spinning and hydrogen is involved. And and we're all orbiting kind of sort of the uh, supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. So there is another. Is that why it's the spiral? Is that why? Uh, yes and no. Um, there's not enough mass in most of them to account for all of the spinning. If I recall uh, correctly, um, we're not entirely sure what causes them. Um, so we just write down dark matter slash dark energy and stop yep. thinking about it. Um, <laughs> and give it to Kyler. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> here we go. Here, here. I don't know what to do with this. Yeah, when we, when we look at galaxies uh, such as our own, we can see that they spin 
and you can actually measure, okay, if they're spinning this fast, they should fly apart uh, because we can see that, you know, there's a certain yeah. amount of mass in there. And but Like a merry-go-round. Uh, like a merry-go-round like, where you've let go of it. And yeah, I, fly it I was going to say, I would hope that your merry-go-rounds yeah. are not falling apart. That's yeah. not how you guys did it? You fly <laughs> off the side? Yeah, sure. But, and so this is where the initial indications from Lowell Observatory were for dark matter, which is, um, you know, the, there's something there that is gravitationally binding things together, gravi- keeping things whole so that the galaxy just doesn't fly apart. And, and uh, you know, we still don't know what this stuff is, but we know that it inter- interacts gravitationally with regular matter, and it, it, it keeps the galaxies put together. So we've got someone researching dark energy. We've got you researching stars, at near close small stars. Mm-hmm. We've got solar telescope. I mean, this is pretty cool. How much uh, research is going on at Lowell that is? Oh yeah, kind of helping change the way we see things and understand it. Um, I always love how all of the pieces just kind of slowly start to fit together as time goes on. Yeah, I'd love to be a fly on the wall if, like, you and Kyler sat down for lunch. (laughs) But that kind of leads me to my next question is, how do we know this stuff? Um, A lot of the stuff, I know we're sort of waiting for Beetlejuice to explode or the lights (laughs) to get here anyway. Yep. Uh, My favorite prank to pull on anyone interested in science, like, oh, yeah, did you hear that Beetlejuice finally exploded? That's a horrible thing. Because it can literally to do. happen How any dare second. You? That's awful. It's, it's so funny to, to do <laughs> that to a so researcher mean, who's been in their office all day and they're <gasps> That's like, That's awful. That is truly um, heinous of you. <laughs> well, because it can happen at any second. And I think it's very funny. But um, we're just waiting for this light to get to us. And we only have light and color to make these observations. So. Yep. I'm just curious, how the heck do you guys pull this off? Like, how do you know these things? Very carefully. We are we are wizards and masters of light. <laughs> I, that's the only answer I will accept because it's mind-boggling. And it's it's one of those things where it's like you you have to know it to be true because you know about iron and you can study mm-hmm. our sun, which was another thing. I was wondering if you studied the sun specifically, our soul specifically a lot to understand other stars that are further away. So I, I don't directly study our sun much, uh, but I do use it as a reference point for a oh, number of things, okay. you know, but, but it really is, like you said, you know, we are wizards of light. You know, what I'm, what's most disappointing about astronomy is I don't get fancy robes with a pointy hat, but uh, we'll get you one. We'll get you, you one. <laughs> but, uh, you know, from, from light, if you, if you analyze it, it contains a lot of information. If you look at its individual colors, if you look at, when it arrives and when it maybe changes, uh, you gave an example of Betelgeuse where, you know, Betelgeuse, we get light from Betelgeuse and the light from Betelgeuse has a lot of red in it and not so much blue in it. And that tells us it's a certain temperature. And if you really kind of spread the colors out, you can actually see chunks of the colors are missing. And that's indicative of certain elements. So, for example, on the red side of the spectrum, there's little bites taken out of the colors of light, and that's indicative of titanium oxide. And, you know, there's a certain assumption going in there that titanium oxide functions the same at Betelgeuse as it does here, and that's a reasonable assumption. Um, and then there's, there's other things we can see, like um, 
the amount of light we get from Betelgeuse actually does change over time. So there was a big to-do about 18 months ago where the brightness of this star, this the star Betelgeuse is the uh, basically one of the shoulder stars in the constellation of, of Orion. Um, it basically became about half as bright as it normally is. And it does that from time to time at, you know, say the 10% level, but it got quite a bit dimmer than it usually had, about as dim as it ever had in the last 100 years, because we've been measuring the brightness for a long time. And so some people were saying, well, it's getting ready to explode, or maybe not. Betelgeuse is a star that is in this terminal phase of its life, where um, it's used up all the hydrogen at its core, and it's burning these heavier elements into even heavier elements. And at some point, it's going to hit this iron catastrophe we were talking about earlier. And uh, it could... it. It will definitely happen anytime between tonight and a hundred thousand years from now. So for sure, mark your very, time. very definitively. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, Poor Beetlejuice. And, and blue and is hotter. Blue is hotter. So the hotter stars Weird. have more blue light coming from it. Um, our sun appears actually kind of white to us, and that's because it's giving off more or less an equal balance of the blue and the red energy. Um, and then the very hottest stars. Um, such as I think uh, the the star across from Betelgeuse in the constellation of Orion, the other shoulder star is a pretty hot star. And so if you actually look at those two stars, uh, you can see one is very red and one is quite a bit bluer. And uh, and so this you know you can kind of very uh, easily see the difference in color between those t- two stars because they have a different temperature. And so yeah, so with Betelgeuse we just can peel these things out of the light, and it's just a matter of having the right instrumentation, like the sort of things that, that I build. And we also uh, build elsewhere in, in the community of astronomers uh, to get as much information as possible out of the light that we get. Because that's uh, most of the knowledge we get in astronomy comes from light. I have never turned down an opportunity to tour uh, your office grounds, Gerard, out <laughs> in Anderson Mesa, which is an offsite uh, portion of Lowell's campus, um, where Gerard runs this incredible program. Where it, let me let me try to explain it, and then you can correct all of the places where right. I'm wrong. <laughs> but you collect light from different points of this uh, area, this swath of land, and you run the light through tubes. That's almost looks like a it's a light delivery system where it gets spat out in this mailroom looking room and then it all comes together to form one image. So it's like you have a huge telescope uh, collecting light, but they're really just different points of light that you pull together to create one image. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. Right? We, we've so cool. basically taken a telescope and, and peeled it apart, uh, but it's still a telescope where uh, you know, spread across a a array, a a campus that's you know some three hundred to a thousand feet across. Um, we have little entry points for the light to enter into the system, and then we get to the like you were saying, the post office looking building, the the mm-hmm. central office, and we can put the the feeds all back together and snap a picture. The thing that's always really mind bending about that for me is that you know. We, we have a mirror that is 100 meters away, about 300 feet away from another mirror, from another mirror, and they, they all relay light to the back end. And when you get a signal, we actually see a blip 
um, you know, which mirror did the photon enter? And <laughs> and the right answer is all of them. All of them. Uh, yeah. Yes. It's so spooky walking around there. Uh, there's like a bridge that goes over all of the tubes that's shooting all this light. Yep. And it's it's really interesting. So like I'm, you know, if you go there during an active time, it's like you can just walk over starlight shooting through these tubes. It's really cool the kind of stuff you can start doing when you are able to understand things like light in a way that's a little better than sort of your general human intuition of just looking at mm -hmm. stuff. Because like that doesn't make any sense that you can have yep. all these different telescopes spread out at different areas and then just take the the one picture with all of those weird it's resourceful. things stuff like that. Yeah. It's yep. how we um it's the same method we use to take that picture of a black hole that came out like yep. seven ish years ago. Really? That's yeah. right. Yeah the the technique is called interferometry where you're taking basically multiple independent telescopes, but getting them to function as a single cohesive unit. And uh, you're basically interfering each one with each other. That's the, the process mm. by which you can, can build big telescopes out of lots of small telescopes. Well, it's super, it's super cool. I, I feel bad like describing this to all the listeners because it's, it's a private, uh, you know, private research area, but man, it is so cool. It's really, really neat. It's yeah. so cool. Yeah, and I I love um around the office all of the like nerd references. It was one of my favorite things. I like actually <laughs> oh, took yeah, notes. I was like, rules. yeah. Oh, it's the nerdiest place ever. One of them, uh, there was a fringe reference with like observers, and um, I know that I've given you crap about this before, but we need to add some Star Trek. We uh, do. References we do need some Star Trek references very immediately. <laughs> But yeah, super neat. We are for oh, good Lord. insanely. I <laughs> have no really idea how this happens every time. We're already we're at our time limit. So uh -huh. thank you so much for joining us for your first podcast. Definitely that uh, you've ever recorded with ever, us. Ever. <laughs> ever. Thank you for coming, Gerard. Yeah, I'm not going to get left on the cutting room floor again, Emma. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> no, thank you so much for talking to us about your favorite little guys up in space. And uh, if you ever want to come back, let me know, because I there are so many, so many questions that I have. It's always a pleasure to join you all. And uh, I look forward to it. Great. And you may or may not be in an upcoming episode <laughs> 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 about your research. So we'll see. But uh, yeah, thanks for joining us, Gerard. Where we talk about the worst movie ever called Interstellar. <laughs> yes. And it's amazing. Um, fourth dimension of love oh my god <laughs> and where can we find you online gerard are you on the twitter i am on the twitter uh with, yes. uh at fringe doctor and uh, that's where i post pith pithy things about fringes and and interferometry and astronomy and uh come visit me there and can people at you with their questions Please. today great so at fringe doctor and we have a Twitter account at StarStuffPod. We also have a Discord that was recently renovated and it's quite beautiful. So go explore the StarStuff Discord. You can find a link at lol.edu slash StarStuff. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Lowell Observatory members and subscribers like you. 